let me just explain what we're doing is uh, typically we do elective classes for all the adults. You can pick and choose. Um, I've opted that what I want to do during this month of July is not do that, but keep you together since we're going to break up in two weeks and do the annual business meeting. And there's a topic that I don't want to deal with, but we need to deal with. I'm going to tell you just frankly, I wish everyone would allow us the opportunity to do this seminar with them, everyone in our church. It would be helpful to you. It would be encouraging to you. It's, it's a negative thought, but at the same time, it's a reality that we're going to be facing different in situations. When I was preparing this, I wasn't prepared for the news that I would get this week. On Monday, I got a phone call from one of my siblings, and they said that my dad had passed away. My dad was 90 years old. Yesterday was his birthday. He would have been 91, living in his own home. My mom died two year, less than two years ago. And so here I am talking about and preparing for this, and I didn't realize that I would be now part of the group that is going to be saying, let's plan, let's prepare, and let's deal with these types of things. And so it happens. It happens in every family. It happens to all of us. And so what I want to do is I want to talk about some practical areas about death, dying, and today I really want to focus on just crises, period. And so I'm going to invite you to go to John chapter 11 with me. In John chapter 11, as we just do this seminar, and for your information, we're recording this. We're not, we're not taping the visual, but we're taping the, uh, the audio and the screenshots. And what we will do is have that posted so that if you aren't able to be here during these next four or five weeks that we do this, you'll be able to catch up with some of the lessons. And we're going to talk about practical things. We're going to talk about issues of what happens, who do you call, what, do you, what happens next, what about the funeral home, what type of funeral home, if you do pre-planning, what you should be very careful about. Families sometimes say we pre-plan and we paid, but they didn't read the fine print, that in the fine print of the contract it said that you paid those rates at whatever year, 2000, but the rates could go up and families get caught off guard with that. We're going to talk about the pros and the cons, about what type of services to have, practical things. We're, we met this past week with another family in our church who's planning and we talked about the pros and cons. A type of service that could be a gospel witness and how much music do you want to do if it's mostly unsaved people? Some practical aspects of that. We want to talk about uh, the idea of when do you come to make a decision of whether or not to pull the plug. We never had that issue years ago. It wasn't a cultural thing. It wasn't possible. Now we deal with that, and some of you are going to have to deal with that. Some of you are dealing with elderly parents. You're dealing with your own. What about planning for it? Well, let's start with John chapter 11. John chapter 11 is a story about friends of Jesus, dear friends of Jesus. He spent time in their home. We're talking about Mary, Martha, Lazarus. We're talking about those who he says that they're described in this text as the disciple whom you love. And so the family there, a brother and two sisters, they live together in Bethany. Bethany is only a couple miles outside of Jerusalem. It's at the latter part of Jesus' ministry and Jesus has been threatened that if he goes near Jerusalem, they're going to arrest him. In fact, they have people out looking for, trying to find more reasons to accuse him and put him on trial. And so in the light of that, Jesus gets words that his dear friend Lazarus is sick. You read that in the very first part of the chapter where Lazarus is sick and Jesus is going to make some comments about that. Jesus to his disciples who 
are uh, several days away. When Jesus heard it in verse 4, it says, This sickness, sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And when he had heard, therefore, that he was sick, he stayed home, stayed where he was, for two more days still in the same place where he was. Then after that, he says to his disciples, So let's go into Judea. His disciples say, Master, the Jews of late sought to stone thee, and you're going to go near to Jerusalem, two miles away? And Jesus said, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If any man walk in the day, he stumbles not, because he sees the light of this world. But if a man walk in the night, he stumbles, because there is no light. These things said he, and after that he said unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him out of the sleep. Now the disciples said, Lord, if he's sleeping, he does well, and if you go, we're going to be in trouble. Howbeit Jesus spake of his death. But they thought that he was speaking of taking a rest. Then Jesus spake plainly unto them and said, Lazarus is dead and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there to the intent that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go unto him. That sounds odd. I am glad for your sakes that I wasn't there. One of those profound comments of Jesus, but one of those challenging ones. And so we set the scene that Jesus is all of a sudden uh, hesitant. He's, he's waited, I should say. He's planned this, that he waited uh, a period of time. And we'll discuss that in a moment. But once he arrives and gets there, the funeral is taking place. When he finally gets there after, after that time, we figure at this point that Lazarus has been four, dead four days. In Jewish culture, they thought that if somebody passed away, the spirit would remain hovering around the body, but by the fourth day it was gone. So that plays into why Jesus hesitated. He wanted everybody to know Lazarus is dead, really dead. Not, a, not just, okay, he's revived by the coolness of the tomb. So the people would understand that. Jesus gets there and they're still mourning. They would usually bury the body or get it within the grave within 24 hours. The reason they did that yeah, they didn't, some of you are, I think I'm hearing the word, they didn't embalm. And so you need to get the body underground, ASAP, or the decomposing of the body, which is an issue in this story. When Jesus shows up, though, there is something that's really interesting. As much as Mary, Martha, and Lazarus loved him and spent time with him, and we all know the story of Martha and Mary, how that Mary was choosing the better thing. When Jesus arrives, their comments to Jesus are very interesting. You jump down in the story. When all of a sudden they get there, it says in verse 21, uh, let's pick verse 20. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary was still in the house. Then Martha said unto Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, whatsoever you will ask of God, God will give it to you. Interesting. What does she mean by that? What, what, is, what is in this text is a lot of confusion even amongst really good godly believers. You know what that's true of our life? When people face grave crises, illnesses, tragedy, sometimes our theology almost goes out the window because we're panicked, we're desperate. We want to make sure everything comes together and sometimes we forget biblical thinking. And we get caught up like Mary and Martha who is implying this even the note that was sent earlier, the disciple whom you love, he makes that comment, Lord, the you love is sick. Nothing else in the note. As if Jesus, if you love him, you, you got to do something. You got to do something. And then she makes the comment, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. What's false about that or what's not accurate? There's no guarantee that that's true. 
She's thinking that because you love us, you won't let something bad happen to us. You will, you will resolve all of our problems. And God, you will make it comfortable for me. Not necessarily challenging. I, I propose to you. We think the same thing at times. In the middle of crises, we wonder, God, what are you doing? My, my greatest, should be your greatest concern, is my comfort and my ease. And then not only does she say it, but her sister says the same thing. And then the implication, I know that even now, whatsoever you will ask, God will do it. What is she thinking he's going to ask? Yeah, bring him back to life. Yeah, you're going to heal him. The assumption is God will heal you. Now you take care of it. Now you take care of it. And by the way, she does have some basis. Did Jesus raise people from the dead prior to Lazarus? At least twice. At least twice that we know of names that are given. And when the crowd is there and Jesus goes to the graveside, remember the shortest verse in the Bible? Okay, this is where Jesus gets to the graveside. He kneels and he sees it. He weeps. We don't know why. Some suggest it's because he's upset by the way the response of the crowd. Some suggest it's because he's calling Lazarus back from paradise and he's feeling sorry for Lazarus. Some suggest he's just caught up in the humanity of emotions that we would be experiencing with the death of a loved one. We don't know what, the, what the, his purpose for weeping is and what motivated it. But the crowd sees that and says, could, this not, could not this man have opened the eyes of the blind? Couldn't he have, the one who did it, uh, couldn't he have caused this man that he should not die? The crowd, they, they assume the same thing. If Jesus had been here, Lazarus would not have died. Good th- bad things don't happen to good people. And so that's, that's a thought that they have. And so they're thinking that. And it's a, it's a thought that is very profound. Can we make some basic conclusions out of this text that are pivotal for any trial and trouble or crises or illness or death or pandemic or bad news you have or your child has an accident and pulls scalding water upon their body and has to be taken to Allentown burn unit and that child's doing much better, I heard this morning. Child's doing much better. Or you go through surgery and you're in surgery and you think that it's going to be there just a couple days and then you're lingering in the hospital. Or you're there next to them and you're the spouse and your spouse isn't getting better from the surgery. And you're upset and you're frustrated. You're wondering what is going on. By the way, Gary moved to rehab and is doing much better. Your prayers made a difference this week. Thank you for praying. And so, what do, what do we remember at these times? What should we be thinking? Trials can and do happen even to those who are right with God and close to Jesus. Okay, this is a biblical truth. Do not fail to remember this. I know prosperity gospel preachers say the opposite. Some of our charismatic Pentecostal brethren, they would teach just the opposite. But biblical truth is bad things happen to good people. It does. It will to you. Let's see another thought. These trials may be serious. They may be even unto death. I don't mean to be negative. I'm just trying to be, this is real. This is biblical. This is where life is. And if we don't prepare for it, we're going to be caught off guard. It's not unusual for trials to get worse before they get, even, get better. Have you ever noticed that? Yes, no? Yes. That sometimes you think, oh, it can't get any worse. And then guess what? It does. Here, I'll give you a true story. 
give you a story. This is from 1829. I'm going to read the account. In 1829, here's what happened. Four days out of Sydney, Australia, a heavy storm struck the vessel Mermaid and drove it into a reef. All 22 men on board jumped ship and swam to a large rock. After three days of waiting, another ship, the Swiftshore, found and rescued them. Five days later, when they're all together on the Swiftshore, another storm struck. The Swiftshore was swept into a ridge and wrecked. Both crews escaped and waited for rescue on some nearby rocks. They were soon picked up by the schooner Governor Reddy, which caught fire three hours later. Once again, everyone had to abandon ship, this time in lifeboats. Along came the cutter called the Comet, which had been blown off course by a storm. The crew of the Comet loaded all the crews from the other ships and the passengers of all those vessels onto their ship. Five days later, a storm snapped the Comet's mast, ripped her sails, and ruined her rudder. The Comet's crew loaded into the longboat, leaving the passengers to cling to floating bits of wreckage that they were pulling alongside. After 18 hours passed, the mailboat Jupiter came along, rescued everyone, only to hit a reef and sink two days later. Fortunately, the the passenger vessel, City of Leeds, was nearby and picked up everyone, finally delivering them back to Sydney. Five ships shipwrecked. The entire incident resulted in five ships being sunk, but incredibly, not a single life was lost. Amazing. Sometimes it gets worse before it gets better. Let's do another thought here. That's very, very important. Jesus knows all about our crises as the crisis is taking place. This is profound. Did Jesus know that Lazarus was sick? He didn't need a note. He knew it. Did he know how sick Lazarus was? Yes. Did he know Lazarus had died? Yes. Okay. And so when he's talking to the 12, he makes it very real, makes it very clear. I know what's going on. So it's there with that idea that God knows, God is paying attention. When you are like Job and you face difficulties, you face a loss in your family, God hasn't forgotten about us. We're going to talk about that a little bit more this morning. The, uh, just the, the idea that Jesus is distant from us. Distance does not diminish his abilities. That was one of the mistakes Martha made. If you had been here, you could have healed. Jesus can heal long distance. He's better than long distance phone service. Okay? Jesus can heal. Distance doesn't make, but here's where we struggle. Okay, you go to the doctor this week, and they say, we need to run further tests. We suspect something abnormal. You are going to eat, breathe, think about that for the next few days. And one of the hardest things that you have to go through is just waiting and waiting and waiting and not knowing what it is. One of the hardest things is waiting. But here's the benefit we have as children of God. God knows. God isn't waiting for a doctor's report. God knows. God's fully aware. Let's take another thought here that's important. Jesus cares for even those in a crisis. Jesus cares. By the way, all this is in notes. Did you pick up the notes when you walked in? Does anybody need the notes? Somebody will volunteer to go and make sure we hand them out. Somebody want to step to the back and grab those and then hand those out? Uh, it, it would be to your benefit to have this so you can write these things down and fill in the blanks and uh, get that taken care of so that you have this for future reference. Jesus cares for those who are facing a crisis. He loved them. He loved them. It comes up several times. Jesus has the power to cure any trial at any time. He could raise them. And by the way, if you need notes, men are moving around. Hold up your hand. Then, like somebody this, Jesus may choose to cure 
or to allow the, the illness, the trial to continue. He may choose. Now, in this case, okay, he chose to let the trial continue for an extended period of time. But whatever the reason, and this is very important, this next section, make sure you have the paper because you're going to fill in blanks. These verses are critical. Fill them in now and then put them in the flyleaf of your Bible, what I'm going to give you in these next few minutes. Okay? When Jesus chose in this case... When Jesus chose in this case, here's his choice. He allowed Lazarus to get sick and to die. Why? For the glory of God. Everything is for the glory of God. Everything's the glory of God first and foremost. Not our comfort, but the glory of God. God is more interested in our holiness than our happiness. That's for the glory of God. There's another reason. Verse 15, look at it. I am glad for your sakes that I was not there. Why did he say that to his disciples? Why does he imply, I'm glad that Lazarus died? To show, they needed to grow. Look what he says. To build, to grow your faith, to increase your faith. Trials may happen to other people close to you to help you, to help build your faith. Then you look down at the end of the story, verse 45. After he raises Lazarus, we read in verse 45, many who were there believed. This is the event that brought them to salvation belief. God will do that. In fact, if you go to Philippians, not you do it another time. I need to keep going. In Philippians 1 verse 12, Paul is commenting. He says that these things, being in jail, have happened unto me for the furtherance of the gospel. I'm in prison. I've been beaten. Why? To give out the gospel because I have occasion to witness to the prisoners. I have occasion to witness to guards that I wouldn't have had before. Trials put you in situations where you can minister to people by sharing the word that you may have never come in contact with before. God knows that. God is wise. As well, 2 Corinthians 12. This is the passage where Paul is saying, God gave me the opportunity to give revelation. I saw things. I learned things that normal people don't get. God revealed that to me. But lest I be lifted up with pride, God gave me a thorn in the flesh. Sometimes God gives us trials to keep us from becoming pompous and arrogant, to keep us humbled, keep us from sin. There's another reason in 1 Peter chapter 1 that it talks about how God is putting us in the fire to get rid of the dross, that, that compound that would be the ugly out of the ore. God puts us in trials to heat us up so as to help bring about the idea that we get rid of some of our anger, some of our lack of patience, some of our, our selfishness, some of our, our reliance upon ourselves. So he helps us to become more like Jesus Christ. And by the way, remember how they did this in ancient times? They would heat up the compounds, the chemicals, the ores, and they would heat it up until typically they could see their face reflected. You and I should be reflecting Jesus Christ. And so the trials may continue until that happens. Romans chapter 5, James chapter 1, that these trials happen to us. Why? To build up faith, hope, patience. Do any of you need more patience? Yes, no? No? Okay, I'm so glad you're the most patient people in the world. Okay. And so if you pray for patience, what does James tell you is going to happen? You're going to get trials and tribulations. Why? Because they create patience. And we say, well, I don't want the trials and tribulations. They're good for us. They're good for us at times. As much as we don't like them, they help us. And so to build Christian character. In 2 Corinthians 12, 
Paul is, again, this is the text where he's talking about the messenger of Satan, a thorn in the flesh. And he says, I will rather glory in the Lord and so that I am in my weakness, I become strong. That's the idea. That I become more dependent upon God. I, 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 this, this sounds critical. I don't mean it to be critical. I, I mean it to be heroic. But it's frequent. Frequently we hear people in serious, serious situations that say these comments. I've never been closer to the Lord than I am now. Why? Because I've lost everything that I was relying upon. Every, I'm stripped. And now I'm just relying upon the Lord. It's not that they weren't relying upon the Lord ever. But the Lord has a way to say, okay, now you're really dependent upon me. We in America, are we really desperate financially? Typically, are we? No, we got credit cards. We can always rely upon them. We got family. We can always move back to mom and dad's basement. Okay. We've got, we got things. We got safety nets. But when God takes away everything, then who do we have to turn to? God. And sometimes he needs to do that for us because he wants to build our faith. He wants us to grow. To show me how dependable, show me and me to show others how dependable God is. You can check out the passage a little bit later. Psalm 119 talks about the trials they caused me. The psalmist says to go back into your word like never before. We read in Psalms where he talks about how my afflictions, they were, they were in my life so as God to catch my attention. Okay. I, again, we're beating ourselves up and, and rightfully so, but not too much here. Do we ever get distracted with things of this world? Does that ever happen? That we get caught up? All of a sudden a trial comes and it pulls us up short. And we say, wait a minute, what about me and the Lord? Those are good things for us. Those are good things. Second Corinthians chapter 1 says that you have comforted me so that I may comfort others. So God sometimes gives you a trial that you can relate to and help somebody else out. I, I, I'm, I can minister, but some of you can minister a lot better if somebody loses a child. I've not been there. Some of you can minister a lot better with somebody who says we're facing cancer. I've not been there. Some of you can minister and understand. Some of you who are widows and widowers can minister profoundly to others here better than I'll ever minister at this point. Why? Because I've not been through that. And so God allows trials in your life so you can uniquely help out other people. And it might even be at a trial of death. There's this thought that it is true. Hebrews 12 is true that sometimes trials come because they're disciplined. That is true. And by the way, when the trial strikes, one of the first things you should ask is, God, is this because I've, I'm, I've got something that's offensive to you? Do you remember Job? Job was able to say, I'm right with God. Okay, and so could many of you. But you've got to check. You've got to ask, Lord, is this why? There is another reason why the trials. It is the enemy. We all know the story of Job. Job is, is afflicted. His kids are taken. His crops, his herdsmen, his finances. Why? Satan is trying to destroy Job's faith. Satan's trying to turn Job against God and God against Job. Does that ever happen that Satan brings the trial? It, it does. It does. But you know, no matter who brings the trial, 
No matter who brings it to our life, whether it's God for discipline or growth or witnessing, or whether it's Satan to attack and destroy us, here's the reality. We may never know why. Job never knew why. End up destroyed. We talked about it a year and a half ago. Job never knew why. Never understood why. The big question for most of us to ask, and I know we're going to do it. We're all going to do it. Why? But that's not the big question. The big question isn't why. The big question is what? Yeah, I, I said it while I was asking you, okay? <laughs> it only dawned on me. Okay, the big question is what? What should I do? How should I respond? Because whether it's from Satan trying to destroy you or God trying to build you, you should respond the same way. Yes, no, does that make sense? Hello? Okay. The, the, we, should be, we should always be doing this, no matter what, no matter what the trial. Even if it's discipline, we should be doing this. Even if it's a growth factor or preparing us, this is how we should be responding. And so when we face a trial, like in John 11, we need to respond this way for whatever the crises. Let me in two thoughts on John 11. One is, this story teaches us every earthly trial is temporary. They're temporary because Jesus will eventually end our trials and crises. Illustrated in a resuscitation. And in the story, he says, it'll eventually be done with the real resurrection. So everything here, you know, in, in reality, in reality, three years of cancer is devastating, is hard, is, I don't mean to diminish it, but in light of all eternity, what will those three years feel like in a hundred years from now? Okay? So the reality is we as children of God, we have blessed hope. The world doesn't have it. No wonder so much of the world panic with COVID. Right? They didn't know. They didn't know if they get it if they die. They're being told if you go to the hospital, you know, it's serious and the hospital beds were filled. Remember back in March and April? No wonder people were panicking. And we wonder, why don't they have the same type of confidence we have? They don't have the Lord. No wonder so many people panicked. Instead of berating them, that should have behooved us to get them the gospel to give them the hope to help them to have that confidence so here's a question I ask and I want to be really practical in this matter what do you do if you get a phone call this week what do you do if there's a car wreck this week what do you do if one of your kids grandkids all of a sudden their health turns totally sour and you sit here and say, well, it won't happen to me. We don't know. We don't know. What do you do to minister to somebody? Or you're, you're, you hear about a nephew or a niece. What are you going to tell your sibling? How, how are you going to help them? Let's talk about it, okay? There's five things I think you should do or we should do. Six things. And I won't get through all these, I'm sure. But I'm going to start at the end. Reflect throughout and even record your journey. Okay, that's the F. That's on the back of your page. Number two, don't reject the realities, okay, of faith and life. And life. Okay. Number D was this. Rise above fear and self-pity. C was enlist and accept assistance from others. 
B is turn to the Lord when the crisis strikes. And where I want to spend our time here is develop biblical thinking and thoughts ahead of time. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Therefore, therefore, we've got to develop biblical thinking so that when the crisis comes, we respond right. We've got to develop biblical thinking. Here, let me, let me see if I can illustrate this way. Jesus is dealing with the disciples in Matthew 11. He's on the Mount of Transfiguration. When he comes down, the disciples have a problem. They're being attacked. They're being accused. Because at the bottom of the mountain, while the glory was taking place on top with Peter, James, and John, what were the other disciples being confronted with? Anybody remember the setting, the story? A man brought his child who is demon-afflicted and suicidal to to Jesus' disciples. And they asked the man asked the disciples to do what? Cast out the demon. They couldn't. The Jewish leaders were critical of them that they couldn't handle the situation. Jesus comes down from the mountain. He deals with it. He casts out the demons. And Jesus makes a comment to the disciples when they said, why couldn't we do this? And Jesus said, this can only be done by prayer and fasting. Now, think this through. Is prayer and fasting appropriate at the moment of the crises? Yeah, but what was Jesus referring to? Prayer and fasting before the crises. Being prepared before the crises strikes. Having the right thinking, the right attitude, the right um, power of God in your life, if I can use that term, without it being misused or abused. So it's preparing yourself for the crises. I, I, bet, I bet this is true. I bet it is true that someone in this room right now is going to be confronted with somebody, a coworker, a friend, a family member. A crisis will arise to somebody in this room. It'll come into your lap this week. What are you going to do to help them out? How are you going to handle that? Be prepared. Start with this. Biblical thinking for yourself and help them to think biblically. Here's where we start with, okay? Training our minds to remember these biblical truths. That God is always in control. That he cares. That he knows. We just talked about it in John 11. You've got to train your mind. Bring your thoughts into captivity in the imagination of your hearts. So that when the crisis comes, you have this steadfast anchor holding you and guiding you, even though your heart is broken and even though you're going through difficult, that God knows. God cares. God is in control. Number two, remember what the Bible teaches about suffering. I want to elaborate on this for just a couple minutes because you listen to radio, you go to the internet, and you're going to hear some garbage stuff, even off TV, about preachers talking about suffering. You better have this down right. And don't be swayed from biblical truth. We already mentioned it. We already said, do bad things, quote-unquote, happen to good people. Yes, But there are convincing uh, speakers that people love to listen because they're motivational and they're impacting, but their theology stinks. They say that God only wants to make you healthy, wealthy, and wise. And they promise you the world. If you send me five bucks, I'll send you a wallet that'll never run out of money. 
well, then why, send, why do I have to send you five bucks? You send me you know, your name and address, and I'll send you miracle water. And you get this miracle water, you get $40,000 in the mail this week. Or something like that. Please don't go look on the internet who it is that says that and try it. Okay? That's bogus, that's bogus preaching. Suffering, according to the Bible, is not always punishment. Okay? It can be, but not always. In fact, John 9, remember this story? Jesus comes into Jerusalem. Who do they see at the gate? The blind man. What do the disciples respond? What's that say, Mike? Yeah. Basically, they say, who sinned? This man or his parents? Remember biblical, uh, Remember Jewish thinking? Every illness, everything had a direct result of some personal sin by the person or by their parent. If their parent had sinned, the children could be chastened for it. Jesus' response, neither has this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest. God doesn't say all suffering is a, re, is a direct result of some personal sin. We know that generically, in the big picture of things, it is. But we're talking about the individual cases. It's not always the case. Sometimes God allows suffering just for the glory of God. I'll give you an illustration. What sin did Joseph do in order to end up in all of his trials? What did he do wrong? He ends up in jail because he resisted the, the sin of immorality. Go, that makes sense. Now, not in, our, not in our thinking, right? It doesn't work that way. Okay, what sin did the three men do that they were cast into the fiery furnace? What sin did they do? They didn't sin, okay. But what did they do? They didn't bow down to an idol. And as a result, everything got peachy keen and was great in their life. No, they ended up in the fiery furnace. By the way, we know the end of the story. So it's not as scary for us. Because we know the end of the story that they came out. And while they were in the fiery furnace, the Son of Man was walking with them. We know that part. I, you know, just, just to kind of stop and pause... Did they know they were coming out in a body or in an urn? Okay. They didn't know. So, you know, they didn't do anything wrong. Okay, what did he do wrong to deserve the suffering he went through? Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. He's doing it for, for us. Okay, so it's, it's not always punishment. It is not always a bad thing. Suffering, as we already mentioned, we gave you the Bible verses, many of them, that suffering is, is at times, and it should be in all cases, um, it should be a growing experience. Even if it's because we've, we're being chastened, it should be a growing experience. Okay, so suffering is not a bad thing. In all suffering, God is to be exalted. Okay, we know that. We understand that. That is biblical truth. Here's a third thought for you. A third biblical truth. And this one's really, really critical. Remember what the Bible teaches about medicine, science, and taking precautionary steps. What I mean by that is this. There are people that say, if you get sick, just go to prayer. Don't use any medicines. And God will heal you. And if he doesn't heal you, it's a lack of, on whose part? On your part, okay? Whoever's the sick person. Okay, what does the Bible really teach 
about medications and medicines. Let's start with one verse. Let's do 1 Timothy chapter 5. Let's take Timothy who has stomach ailments. And he is told, take a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. Okay? In biblical days, wines were different than our wines. Okay? Wines were the common household drink. What didn't you drink? The water. The water. By the way, if you've traveled abroad, what is the thing you need to be really careful of? Drinking the water, okay? And so he is being told, take a little bit of the wine and most of the wines, okay? You can argue this all you want, but you're arguing from, from, not from history or factual data. Most Bible wines were compared to today's grape juice, fruit juices. That is the, the predominant wines of ancient days. And even if it fermented, the Jews had rules about how to prevent it and how to apply it. And they had a three-to-one mixture of what waters they had that were good with the wines to make sure it wasn't potent like our wines and drink today. And so he's saying to Timothy, he says, hey, what you need to do is take a little wine. Okay, could it be prune juice? Could be. Could be. I don't think so, but could it be just the normal wines? That you should just take, take some, some fruit juice for your stomach. Okay, without, without elaborating, that was a common medicine of that day. That was a common beverage that was done for health. Today we have different common medicines. Okay, and it's not wrong for our ailments and our stomach's sake or whatever it may be. I don't think it's, you know, and this is me and my silliness. What is the difference between, between taking some prescription medicine that will help you to keep your insulin in control, your diabetes in control? What is the difference between that and me wearing glasses? Yeah, it's correcting a problem. It's correcting a problem. So then we wear glasses, but we get paranoid about taking medications. Okay, can medications be abused? We all know that. Okay, we're not talking about that. We're talking about, okay, if you have, and, and we're far more aware in this culture, thank God we live in a day where there's good medicines. Some of you wouldn't be here. Okay, maybe a lot of us wouldn't be here. But if your child has asthma and you have the opportunity to use an inhaler, is it a lack of faith to use an inhaler? No, it's using the medications. It's taking the wine for the stomach. In James 5, this one comes up. You may want to turn to James 5. This is frequently challenged in James chapter 5. This is frequently brought up, and especially within our, the brethren and sisters within the Pentecostal movement, they will run with this, and even some within uh, good churches, and so I want to explain where we're at. He says in James chapter 5, is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. That's great. One of the first things we should do when we have a physical illness is what? Pray. Okay, that, that's just common sense. Is any of you married? Let him sing psalms. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven. The context makes it very clear that in this case, the person who is sick is basically a person who is sick because of sin in their life. 
That is the verbiage in the original language that makes it very clear. This is a punishment deed. And so the person has to be repentant. And as well, there's the whole argument that comes out of this text that what we should be doing is if there's a serious illness, then you should be calling for the elders. And by the way, the elders in the New Testament are pastors. They aren't the deacons. If you go through and study the terminology, it's pastors, elders, bishops, same term for the same office. And so in that, in that regard, call for the pastors of the church and they would come. And then, there's, uh, then it's talking about the anointing of oil. And there are some who say if we anoint with oil, it will provide a sure cure for the, uh, the illness to be evaporated, taken away. I don't see that at all in this passage. Okay? I think that's a stretch of the text. And part of the reason is for going back and studying the context, studying the words that are used. Literally, it says, after anointing him with oil. Okay? After that's the first act that's being done. You're calling for the elders. Okay? The elders come. Okay? And the anointing of oil, is it some type of anointing spiritually? Well, Jesus never used oils in any of his healings. He never did that. As well, the word that is used here for anoint is not the same word used in the New Testament for anointing somebody in a spiritual sense, like anointing for a priesthood or the anointing that Christ had or like you're anointed with the Holy Spirit. Different word. This word that is used, okay, the lifo here, was a word that was used for basically, Jim, thank you for volunteering, <laughs> doing this. You don't want me to stop, do you? Okay. <laughs> it's basically rubbing. It's the idea of rubbing, you know, a lot of physical contact. Same thing in Luke chapter 10, where the man who is left in the story of the parable of the Good Samaritan, the man is left by the side of the road. He is rubbed with oil. What is the oil used for? Medicinal. Medicinal purposes. So call for the elders after you've applied the medications and we'll pray for them. But the point is medications were used even in this text and encouraged. Give me another text. In 2 Kings chapter 20, King Hezekiah is told he's sick. He's on his bed. Isaiah the prophet comes to him and tells him, you're going to die. Get your house in order. You're sick unto death. And so the prophet tells him, and King Hezekiah, after the prophet walks out, King Hezekiah turns his face to the wall. He prays and prays and prays. And before the prophet has left the garden of the palace, all of a sudden the Spirit of the Lord says to him, go back and tell him, I've extended his days 15 more years. Do you guys remember this story? Okay. And so the prophet goes back in and informs the king that you're going to be healed and 15 more years of life are added to your life. What's interesting, what's interesting in this text, okay, is the prophet says to him, by the way, now, to deal with the wound and the problem that you have, take a lump of figs and lay it on the wound. If this is a pure miracle healing without medications, why is he using a poultice? God says, I'll heal you, but God's method of healing him is using common medicine. Now, can God perform a healing without medications? No doubt about it. No doubt about it. Absolutely no doubt about it. We're not questioning that. But does God use medicines to bring about healing? Is doctors 
our doctors, is that profession a legitimate profession? Yes or no? Yeah. Are hospitals things we should use? Do we want to go? No. Okay. Okay. But they're, they're valid. Okay. And so we have that information as well. Here's one for you that, that is now the strong drink. King Lemuel, that's Solomon's, his mom's nickname for him, it is not for kings to drink wine nor to, for princes strong drink lest they forget the law and corrupt things. But then he, she goes on and says, give strong drink. Now we're talking about more than, now we're talking about wines that have um, the stupering ability, okay? The knockout ability, the strong drink, okay? Give them unto one that is ready to perish, What's, what's that mean? What's that? Okay, actually it is. It actually, it's a twist that or turn that backwards. Okay? It is, this is a sedative type thing. This is when you're advocating, when can you give somebody really strong something that, that would ease the pain? When do you give, when do you give real strong Morphine. Hospice? Yeah, that's what we're talking about in this text. Is helping to make the person comfortable so that they're, they're, they're in that final stages. Okay? Now you're giving them something to help them through. And you say, oh no. I don't want to give some medications to somebody in their final stages. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. If that person is suffering from a... My mother was suffering from cancer. Um, it'll be less than two years ago. She's suffering from cancer. She's in her last day. She, they found out that she had pancreatic cancer. She had other cancers, but this one. Pancreatic cancer, very painful. And so hospice stepped in, and their plan was make her comfortable, use medications that would keep her somewhat in a stupor. I don't know how else to say it. Therefore, conversations aren't easy. Conversations don't go well. It's kind of you know, like, yo, mom, can you hear me? And maybe you'll get that type of response. Okay? And you talk and you say your things. Uh, somebody wanted to have conversations with my mom. So they indicated to stop all medications because they wanted to have conversations. So overnight, my mother's situation, terrible discomfort, thrashing, pain, and just intense agonizing before they realized what had happened. Do you want your loved one to go through that difficulty where they can't communicate for pain? Yes, no? So that's what he's talking about in this text. So there's appropriate times for the medicines, okay? What I mean by this, the precautionary steps, and I'm probably going to offend some people, but I, I don't care, okay? I do and I don't. What I mean by this is this. I have heard people tell me it's not a step of faith to have insurances. If you have insurances, you're not trusting God, okay? Um, what about 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8? If a person doesn't provide for their household, they're worse than an infidel. Is it fair for you 
to put an extreme heavy financial burden on your family so that they will be sunk because you are living by faith. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, because, because I trust God. Nothing bad is going to happen to me. I'm living for the Lord. Therefore, everything is going to be fine and okay. I don't need insurances. I don't know how to answer this other than, doesn't that seem a little bit pious and incorrect? Now, do I understand that some people can't afford insurances? That I understand. I'm, I'm not, okay, that, that I understand. But even in our culture where we're at today, if you can't afford it, there's ways of getting some type of help. You know, we've had some folk that have said, I'm not, I'm not going to have insurances, and besides, if I get sick, it is the church's responsibility to help me out financially. And that's happened more than a few times. The, the, I'm of the thinking that it is appropriate for me to take care of my own family. It's not your responsibility. That I should carry my own knapsack. You help me if it becomes an overburden. But I'm responsible to take care of us, my kids. And so that includes making sure I have adequate resources that if a crisis happens, I can handle the crisis and deal with it. And so there's that idea that some say we don't have any kind of insurances. We make no plans for a life insurance so that if there's a death, we're just trusting God. Well, then you're leaving that burden on your family. There's some who would say this. Um... I'm trusting God so I can expose myself to anything and everything without caring about how I eat, how I exercise or don't exercise, exposing myself to dangerous situations. I, I, did any of you do this? This is terrible. Did any of you do this when your kids were little and there was somebody with chicken pox? That you opted? Some of you know where I'm going. Okay. What did you do with your kids? We did this. You take them, a play date. I'm going to bring my kids to your place because you got chicken pox. Okay? And we did that because we love our kids. <laughs> because we knew chicken pox does what as time goes by. If you get it, it gets much worse. So you want to get them when it's early and they can handle it. Does that mean we should live the rest of our lives that way? That, you know, I'm trusting God, therefore I don't have any problem dealing with What's this asbestos? You know, I'm, isn't that like picking up rattlesnakes in a church service and shaking them about? I can't even do it well. Okay. <laughs> and because I love God, these snakes will never bite me. Right? Okay. What about the idea of assu assuming? You won't get anything, and if you find a lump, you find a physical problem that's painful, you just ignore it. What, is, what does that do for your family? Do you remember the story where Jesus is tempted? He's up on the, the Satan takes him up on the pinnacle. Remember? The pinnacle of the temple, and he tells him what? You've got to jump off because God said... 
the angels will, will catch you. And Jesus, and, and by the way, would the father, does the father care for the son? Yes. Was the father wanting the son to die at this time? No. 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 What is the problem with this? Being presumptuous upon God. Right? Testing God. That's what Jesus calls this. So shouldn't we make, take some precautionary steps to plan and prepare for crises, the possibility that if there's an illness, let's, do some, let's not just ignore it. That if there is you know, need with, with family that we have some type of you know, financial backing, isn't there, wisdom for, isn't there wisdom for some people during pandemic? I, I, I'm going to get myself in trouble with some. <laughs> isn't it a reality that when that pandemic first came, wasn't there wisdom for some people who had health issues to stay, step back? Was there wisdom in taking some precautionary efforts when we didn't know what was happening? You know, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with us using our brains along with our Bibles? Remember this. The Bible teaches several basic truths about life and death. Let me get started and we'll pick up here next week. Okay, these are all making sure you're thinking right. Think right about life and death. All human life is valuable and sacred. All of it. All lives matter to God. Okay, all of them, including the unborn. Look up Exodus 21. If you harm a woman who's pregnant and that child, mischief comes to that unborn child, you forfeit your life. God values all life. All of it. Elderly as well as pre-born. They are valuable. i got to stop. Time is demanding. Let's pick up here next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for following along. Join me next Sunday as we deal with this more.